June 14, 2021. It's a lot for Pedro Show.
for Pedro Show. Happy Monday. Uh, started off with John Coltrane doing Blues to Elvin. Doug Clifford for all the money in the world. And my guest, via Skype, you're, uh, you're in Reno, right? Yes. Okay. First, I'd like to start with how you got into music. Bring me your earliest musical recollection. Well, I, I, I bought my first record when I was nine years old. And it was... Uh, Roll With Me Henry by Etta James and uh, my dad hated it <laughs> I, that I, that's one of the more vivid memories that I have of that uh, but uh, then uh, the, the second uh, the record I, I bought was Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley yeah great too and you know that that, that, uh, that Tom Tom Rhythm thing yeah uh, really just you know, I didn't know what the hell was happening, but it was it was making me feel pretty darn good for a nine-year-old. I'll tell you that. Now, the pad you grew up in, was there musical instruments? No, but my mother was a singer, and uh, the, the radio was on, but it was, it was adult radio. It was before rock and roll, for sure. I'm 76 years old, so that... You know, you go back to, to those days, uh, but uh, uh, she would sing a lot, and and uh, she, I knew that uh, later on when I was a, a teenager, I knew that uh, she really kind of got married young and and would have loved to have been a singer on the radio. Oh wow! Now. Uh at school, were you in the marching band or the choir or shit like that? No, because they wouldn't allow you to play rock and roll. Oh, really? It was forbidden. Yeah, it was, we're talking like 1958. Uh, we started the band uh, uh, in 19, about 1958. Uh, we were 13 years of age, John and Stu and I. I, I was born in 1957. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Sputnik. Okay, let me ask you this. How did you get on the drums? Beg your pardon? How did you get on the drums? I mean, what made you think? Like, you wanted to do rock and roll, right? And you like that tom-tom yeah. that beat with the Bo Diddley song. But what right. what gravitated you towards the drums? Well, uh, a television special, actually. Uh, I was thinking about playing the sax because back in those days, the, the, the solo instrument... It wasn't the guitar, it was the saxophone. And there's some great stuff, you know, and that was that crossover between R&B and country uh, that creates uh, rock and roll. But I, I was watching uh, a television special on Gene Krupa, the great Gene Krupa, and I, uh, he was out on a, on a football field, and uh, you couldn't see the band, and they had like 10 drum sets set up, and he walked through there as they played, he was playing on the uh, uh, on the uh, the cymbal stands and not really getting into the drum part until the it was it was sing 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 too by the way uh, was the, the tune and then when they they hit that 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 big chorus in the horn section kind of came roaring in he sat down and started you know playing the whole the whole drum set and I just said that's what I want to do Gene Krupa yeah amazing cat. Uh... Yeah. Okay. So he's the he's the inspiration. And what about 
So did you, you know, I've had people on the show, well, even in Elvin Jones's uh, Different Drummer documentary, he said he started on Pots and Pans. Did you do that? Well, uh, I actually used my school books so I wouldn't be telling my mother a lie when, when I t told her I was doing my homework. <laughs> <laughs> So, I set them up at my desk and I had a little brass lamp that was popular in the, in the 60s or late 50s and a little flex neck on it and it was cone shaped and I had my pencils out and uh, th those are the pencils I never sharpened. <laughs> I would play along with listening listen to the top 40 radio and, and then I would listen to the R&B uh, station as well and I would listen to, to the drummer and, and, and trying to figure out what what it is that he he was he was doing there were no no female drummers at that time so ladies don't I, I'm not leaving you out intentionally when I say uh, you know the guys there were there were, there were there's some pretty good uh, female drummers out there nowadays oh yeah yeah that, that's good news but uh, anyway uh, so my mom would I had the radio as barely, barely cracking, just so I, you know, I, 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 I could hear it. And uh, she would kind of open the door, and, and I'd hear her footsteps coming up, and so I'd just flip open one of the books, and, what are you doing? I'm doing my homework. <laughs> and she, she, she would have wanted to bust me. She, she said, you're doing your homework with pencils that haven't been sharp. <laughs> Oh man! So so, when did you get your first trap kit? Well, I, I bought a snare drum, and uh, and uh, uh, wrought iron was very popular uh, uh, for like chairs, canvas chairs, and holding flower pots. And uh, the, the, there was one of those that I balanced the drum on, and if I hit it, it would knock it off of there. So <laughs> That needed improvement, uh, and, and a neighbor uh, gave me a, a bass drum, but it was a marching bass drum. But uh, I didn't really know the difference at that time, and, uh, and I needed, and I knew I needed something to make to make it make it make noise. So I got a, a foot pedal, and uh, so then I realized, you know, when I saw John Fogerty in the music room. Uh, the, the, the teacher could not have been in, in, in hearing zone because he was playing rock and roll. He was playing uh, records that I had in my collection. And so I listened to him and, and so until he stopped. And, and then I, I walked up and I said, that's Fat Stone on Little Richard, no for no. He says, yeah. I said, you want to start a band? He says, well, actually, I play guitar. I said, well, I know a guy named Stu Cook whose dad's a rich lawyer and he's got a rumpus room with a piano and, and it's in tune and uh, we can practice there. Well, that would be Stu, uh, our bass player for, for Creedence Clearwater Revival. Sure, sure. And the, the, we were an instrumental trio, but without any bass except for Stu's left hand. So uh, it was piano. Uh, John had a little silver tone uh, guitar and amp. And, uh, and I had a, a at that time, I had a, a four-piece drum set, and uh, that's how that's how it all started. And then Tom Fogarty 
was in a, a, a band, a pretty good one, Spiderweb and the Insects, they were called. Pretty cool name. <laughs> and uh, uh, he had the idea of you know, recording and taking a, a demo down to L.A. and trying to get a, get a deal for his band. So when he came in to, uh, to practice, uh, he said, okay, guys, uh, I want to talk to you. He says, I'll, I'm going to teach you this, these two songs on the piano and we'll, we'll arrange them and uh, uh, then uh, once we've got it figured out I've got studio time so we're going to go and record these and uh, then I'm going to LA and trying to get a get a, a deal for us and the guys in the band said are we getting paid he says no it's costing me a fortune this is for our, your future and they, somebody else blurted out are there going to be any chicks there and he says no we're going to be recording these songs to try and make a, a deal in LA and they said we'd rather work on our cars prototypical <laughs> anyway Tom, Tom was very supportive of, of, of the three of us he would come to our gigs when he could and then he'd actually sing a song or two and uh, that was really cool when we had a, had a singer singing with us. And uh, can you tell me about the first gig? Yeah, uh, the first gig was at the El Cerrito. That's where we were living in the East Bay uh, area of San Francisco Bay Area, and and it was at the uh, boys' club. Sorry, girls, it wasn't the boys and girls' club at that time. <laughs> I remember. They weren't. They weren't very progressive. Back no, there. no. <laughs> But anyway, I remember it. Uh, uh, I made an impression on my dad because I made five bucks. We we made five bucks each, so it cost fifteen bucks for the band. Of course, a dollar bought a lot more. Than oh yeah, oh yeah. It does today, but still, it was the idea that you know we had a set, a little set that we played, and and uh, people were dancing and and. Uh, having a good time and I felt great to to be able to play in in the band uh, you know in front of our, our peers and what, what did you call the band the, the Blue Velvets Blue Velvets yeah I've read about that because I, I, I'm always mixed up about the timeline and stuff so this first gig and you guys are instrumental so you're playing music for people to dance to um, some covers some original Yes, exactly. Some covers and some originals. Exactly what we did. And in those days, in Top Forty Radio, it was you could have uh, uh, Harry Mancini's orchestra play uh, a song from a movie, and then Little Richard would come out and you know play one of his songs. So it was a, a pretty big scale, of, of a wide uh, gap uh, of uh, music types in Top Forty. Uh, and uh, and then of course uh, the R and B stuff was R and B and and uh, then the, there was uh, country radio and uh, you know, I listened to all of it but mostly uh, the top forty because uh, those those songs all those songs were hits and uh, so I, I I was listening to what uh, you know was being played by the the best and uh, and then the R and B stuff I just I felt different when I played it. I just and still do it. It's just a great, a great, great uh, groove that, that that they were laying down. A lot of those guys were 
in the same bands uh, in New Orleans, uh, certainly. Earl Palmer? Yeah, oh yeah, uh, that's right, my man, my man. Yeah, incredible drummer man. I think he kind of came up with the kick drum for rock and roll. Yeah, he, he mastered that for sure. And uh, a lot of the guys would go there. Little Richard Spamp recorded there, Fats Domino recorded there. Uh, you know, several uh, uh, singers uh, would put um, their best work in uh, New Orleans. So that had a big, a big influence on uh, with the the end, uh, you know, with the R and B thing and and rock and roll having a, a beat to it. Uh, oh yeah, I, I've even read that the trap kit was invented in New Orleans. Um, yeah, I believe it was. Yeah, the contraption, right? I want to play something here from Clifford Wright called I Need Your Love.
musician. Okay, musician. Hello. Hello. You're a noise musician, mm-hmm. a visual artist, and instrument maker, native from San Francisco, but working uh, in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, USA. Uh, your artistic practice is concerned with the specialty and physically of sound and its relationship to the human body. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to present a performance tomorrow, Friday, October 18, at the festival. Mm-hmm. So to start our interview, I suggest you to, to talk about, about your interest in your um, artistic approach. Um, your artistic approach or path emphasizes uh, the spaciousness and the physicality of sound and its relationship to the human body. Uh, why this approach? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I just feel like um, we have no choice other than, than to make sense of the world through our relationship between our body and the spaces that we inhabit. And all of uh, my performances, I try to make uh, site-specific. Uh, and it's in the service of kind of making sure that you're present. Um, and I think it's like uh, I present my, my sound in a way where it's not separate from the gestural aspect of like me like turning a knob or something like that you see there's an interaction between the body and the the way sound is created um, and I think in a lot of electronic music there's that divide there which is why I think a lot of laptop artists no offense to laptop artists um, they lose a little bit of um, the compellingness of like the interaction between the sound and like the hu- the human performer so um, I like to inhabit a space in a way where my body is directly interacting with the space itself and the sound itself is also interacting with the space so I mean it's kind of it sounds kind of like a tautology but I think the feedback kind of aspect of it like this impinges on that which is impinging on the sound that's like falling on your ears uh, is a really kind of compelling idea and dimension to play with before that you, you work in the field of technology uh-huh. and you, you manufacture instruments mm-hmm. and uh, you can therefore very precisely configure your sound devices. Uh, what tool do you, do you use to, to support your artistic approach and how do you uh, create your own device? Okay, so Jessica Ryland, my, my mentor, and uh, she was the one who uh, taught me how to build electronics. So um, my induction into kind of the, the experimental sound world started from a very granular, basic, fundamental level. And so I think I have this kind of like, think about like, I guess like a painter who also like mixes their own paints and stuff like that. So they have this super in-depth uh, control and understanding of the kind of um, uh, medium that they're working in. And so I feel like a lot of the times like that will inform the ultimate product the ultimate sound so you know it, it, it came from even like picking out certain transistors that were noisier than others and so um, like my synth jealous heart has like these we called it the Cadillac transistors that have this extremely like beautiful rich kind of like noise that they produce richer than others not to say that it's the other products are not good but this in particular you know I it can um, uh, have a very distinct sound I think um, so I think uh, it works to my advantage in that I can create incredibly um, specific sounds and like noises that I haven't heard 
you know, from other instruments. And so I can tailor things to my taste. Uh, so, yeah, I think being able to also work on a very fundamental level gives me a lot of um, ability to do to branch outward. So not only am I doing like analog synthesis, but I'm also building instruments that use like motors. Um, and like I'm taking like different uh, parts from other instruments, like piano parts, and like using those, incorporating those into my work. So I think that gives me an ability to like move laterally and have um, a wide variety of different approaches and sounds because I'm coming from this very basic level. Thank you very much, Vito uh, Shen. Mm -hmm. To learn more about you, uh, go to evishen.com. Yes. Thank you. <laughs>
Waffle Pedro Show, Clifford Wright with I Need Your Love, then Clank Quartet after that, Scotty, North Carolina, geez, forgive my misanthropy, that's a complicated word, Sam Lock Ward after that, where is it at, where it at, Luff 2019 interview, Victoria Shant, then Bombas Prend in D.C. area, Bayou Doe Eyes. DDCB06 from Thor uh, Thor Harris. Rob Halverson with Bill Callahan. 57 brand new from P. Kane. And finally, Clifford Wright with She Told Me So. So, you guys doing that journey to SoCal to record them songs. Is it still Blue Velvets? Uh, no, uh, it, uh, when we when we played the songs when Tom came, uh, uh, we were uh, it was it was Tommy Fogarty and the Blue Velvets. So you you become his backup band? Uh, well, half the time. Okay, uh, okay. We, I'm trying we, to understand. We were near uh, Cal Berkeley. Uh, it was just a couple miles from where we lived, and so we would play f frat parties uh, a lot. And the money was good, and they would buy us beer as well. <laughs> double, double incentive there. Yeah. But uh, so you know, and Tom was married and, and had a wife, wife and kids and a family and all of that and a job. And uh, so uh, uh, that 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 happened later on. We started changed our names. Uh, we were unfortunately named the Gollywogs by. The, uh, <laughs> The record company. I've read about that name. Oh, I, that, ju yeah. I just wondered where that came from. Well, it didn't come from us. <laughs> and, and, and worse than that, the, the uh, outfits that we had to wear, everybody wore the same uniform. It was uh, a white and red paisley shirt, uh, quilt pants like four-inch squares, <laughs> these weird colors, uh, a, a green suede vest, and uh, white Cossack hats. <laughs> so after uh, the night, or the day after a gig, uh, I walked around uh, with, uh, you know, with, a, with a very stiff neck because I played with my head down. <laughs> it, it was horribly embarrassing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and whose whose idea is this? The record, the same ones with the Gollywog name. Yeah. Yeah. He named, he named us and he dressed us. <laughs> neither, neither neither one was good. Yeah, yeah. So, so but Tom like ends up joining your like you said half the time you guys are your trio and then the half time you're backing him up but he comes to join like your trio band. Yeah, he, he we decided that uh, um, you know we couldn't. Uh, we had a, a, a regional hit, Stu Cook and I were, uh, uh, Stu Cook being the bass player for Creedence Clearwater Revival and my old pal of 60 years. Uh, and I went to San Jose State, we were going to college. Tom was working for pg and &E and John was working at, in the mail room at the rec, uh, record company. And uh, we, uh, we realized then, you know, when we had a, had this hit, it was number one in San Jose, number one in Sacramento, and uh, a few other places across the country, and we made a little money on that, which allowed us to uh, buy new gear, 
nobody bought a car or any of that. We, we spent every penny. Uh, I got a, I got a brand new trap set, which was so cool. And uh, the guys got amps and so on and so forth. But we made, we, we realized that part-time bands have part-time hits. So we, if we want to take this dream and uh, give it every every chance it, it, it can have to to uh, come true, uh, we had to we had to do nothing but be musicians and, and play six nights a week, five sets a night. Mm. And get we get our stuff together. But the, the downside to that is nobody's making any money. Yeah. And, and uh, Tom, once again, was the hero. He had some credit cards, and we would use, use the credit card till we got our second sheriff's warning on that card. And then we'd pay what we, what we could afford on that card. And we'd kind of rotate the cards, and that's how we did it. And uh, he also gave up the lead singing rights to... Uh, to John, because John had a, a, a more of a rock and roll voice than Tom. Tom was a, a, like uh, uh, a balladeer. Uh, he could sing rock and roll, but uh, uh, he, he had he had a, he was a smooth tenor, uh, and, and John was a you know a, a, a sandpaper. Tenor. <laughs> right. So, he and John had to rock and roll. So let me ask you: when you were playing with Tom as the singer. Did you play drums different than when John was a singer? Probably, uh, yeah, 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 more than likely. Now that I think about it, it's not something I ever really thought about. But yeah, uh, you know, we were it was harder edged, and uh, you know, the the music is 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 in your head and in your heart, and, and uh, so yeah, it, we we were uh, we definitely be a better rocking band than than we were with, with Tom, but uh, uh, he was a, a, just a, a great supporter of the band and, and band leader and made decisions that other guys wouldn't have, wouldn't have made, but it was for the best uh, and the betterment of the, of the band. I think his rhythm guitar was pretty crucial. Uh, was, yeah, yeah. And, and very unsung. Yeah, know, really good. John wouldn't let him sing or submit material. And he never thought that was coming. He never thought that, that was part of the pen. We never would have made it. He, he, he owed it to him to let him sing a song, like maybe La Bamba. That would have been a perfect song for him. But uh, John wouldn't do it. And so that was a, a point of argument bet between the three of us and him. But I don't want to... Yeah, we don't have to get into, to get into what, that. What about, what about other drummers that were playing with you? Did you look to any of those cats for what they were doing? Uh, yeah, oh sure. Yeah, I'd always, I'd always uh, check them out, and uh, we went to. A, well, uh, there was a point when we, you could go into the, the the black neighborhoods and go into some of the clubs in there, and uh, and we were, you know, we were underage for sure, and uh, uh, but uh, you could, we we saw uh, 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 Alan Wolf. We saw. Uh, uh, got all these all these great guys and and their band so I could sit on the floor as long as I you know we weren't in, in the, being seen or in the way and uh, just watch them what I mainly watched is I watched their feet uh, because you know that, that that was that was the difference maker in in, in the the, the R&B stuff uh, and uh, you're talking the kick in the hat yeah yeah 
First hour, June 14, 2021. Just watch Peter show special guest Doug Clifford. Hold tight for hour two. June 14, 2021. It's the second hour of the Watt for Pedro show.
goat. After my soulmate, this dog named Poquita, died, I built a lot of these wooden dogs that were sort of, you know, they looked sort of like her. I still have her skull around here somewhere. That's something a crazy person would say, right? <laughs> All of these things that I've done, like I make things, that's so therapeutic for me, combating depression. It's not that I'm completely fearless about people's judgments about me and my mental illness. It's just that the secrecy is so potentially lethal. The reason I wear this skull face makeup is in my book. My head is a skull. In 1992, sleep began to elude me, replaced by terror and sweating cold. I began having panic attacks. It took all of my will just to keep from running, screaming out of the grocery store or the bicycle shop where I worked. My brain was becoming a burning cell from which I could see no escape. The chemistry in my brain changed drastically enough that I didn't feel like myself anymore. None of my gauges were working anymore. The things like my sense of humor and my sense of justice, and that was all just getting foggy and, and busted and lost. Weeks passed and my mind grew darker and smaller. It felt like myself was dissolving. It felt like there was something horrible going on inside my head that if people looked at me, they could see. And it would be so hideous that it would just turn the world against me. I used to work at the suicide hotline. That was a great job. It didn't stress me out or bum me out to talk to sad, lonely people on the phone. Most of them just needed, like, somebody to talk to, you know, some neutral, non-judgmental ear. And I had certainly been to hell and back with um, clinical depression. When I started taking these pills, I hated the idea of having to take pills probably for the rest of my life, but it's no big deal. We all have to eat every day. We all have needs. We all need Twitter and Instagram, and some of us need to eat a pill in the morning. Like espresso, that's a lot more trouble than taking a pill, but also worth it. Exercise has just tremendous effects on neurochemistry. More than just about anything, tons of exercise has been an antidepressant for me. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Stella. The last time I thought about committing suicide was two years ago when me and Marianne broke up and uh, I went into a pretty dark, depressive episode not that we've said goodbye. We're, like, best friends now. 
When he starts to get depressed, I can see it happening because he's a lot less responsive, a lot less verbal. It's hard to watch somebody retreat like that and not really be able to do anything. Just make sure he knows he's not alone. A lot of people with depression sleep 18 hours a day. I am one of the people that has depression that can't sleep. And of course that began to really wreak havoc on my brain chemistry because I stayed awake for so long. It just felt like everything inside me was just burned and awful. Every thought had like a predator behind it. I rode my bike in the burning sun down a long country road. On the road I saw a smashed snake. I laid down on the scalding hot road beside the snake. We were dead, the sky was fire. I decided to kill myself. Our strongest instinct is supposed to be self-preservation, so it's really odd when someone kills themselves. Part of me wanted to do that, but obviously other huge, powerful parts of me would not let that happen. I've told myself so many times how glad I was that I didn't quit life at 27. And I've toured the world a bunch of times over and met so many wonderful people. And I almost denied myself all of that in one action. I in no way think of this lost year as wasted, more like a horrifying trip through a wilderness of dementia from which I emerged fearless and irrepressible. That's my book. Love is like the antidote. For some reason, these brilliant people see something worth loving in me. So sometimes you just have to rely on the love that other people have for you. Once I visited a place that felt like death, being alive was by contrast so much more colorful. I've made this life for myself that allows me the time to feel joy and be around the people I love and the animals. Going through depression, I'm grateful for the things that it taught me.
Standing in the window Behind the drawn shade I always had a dream Of loving you one day Yeah, you know, they were one of them. Uh, you know, Clapton and uh, Jack Bruce. Jack, Jack Bruce, big effect on me. Bad, bad boy there. Uh, yeah, I definitely did. And uh, Dave Garibaldi from Tower of Power. Yeah, took those guys on their first uh, uh, national tour. And uh, man, they, I still I'd stay in touch with Dave on occasion. In fact, I owe him a, an email. Okay. Uh, thanks for thanks for reminding. Me. <laughs> no problem. Let's tell the people we heard uh, C- Clifford Wright doing "Lost Pride Fever," then Thor Harris with "Major Depression Chapter One." Great drummer man out of Austin. Lisa Cameron, Sandy Ewan with "Live at Lawndale One" in Houston. Lisa Cameron's at Joshua Tree right now recording with Galaxy people. Great drummer. Doug uh, finally, finally Clifford Wright getting that together. I see your silhouette. So, uh, yeah, you know, when I look at those pictures at those big arena or stadium gigs, it seems the drummers don't have monitors. Did you play with, did you guys have monitors? We had monitors. We had, (laughs) we had stacks and uh, uh, then we switched to uh, 15 inch wedges on, on the floor. 
uh, on left and right in, in stereo for me. Oh, okay. The, the guys had uh, uh, stacks, so they would have those off to the side and be, be playing them. And, and you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the Clifford Wright thing and uh, so on, that, that, that was cut, cut 35 years ago. Uh, recorded 35 years ago and I found it uh, and there's like five or six albums worth of stuff uh, including a solo album that I I, I, I did and one another album with uh, Bobby Whitlock in a different band and uh, uh, so uh, it's I call it Cosmos Vault <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a, a series of, of, of music that's going to be coming out of that about Vault and uh, right now, uh, the, the Clifford Wright, that was uh, Steve Wright from Greg Kin Band, bass player, yeah. uh, ex- extraordinaire, and co-writer of, of Jeopardy. He's from El Cerrito as well. Uh, and his brother was in, in uh, the class behind us. And uh, he was almost uh, going to be in Credence. But the problem with him was he was a... a, a always getting in fights and we, we realized that we were playing some pretty rough joints back then and uh, not a good idea to have a bad <laughs> fight uh, because yeah throwing cigars okay yeah. so, so so this Clifford Wright album did you plan it out or was it just like jamming around and then you ended up with well, all these songs well we, we Steve and I wrote all those songs we have still some, there's some other stuff that uh, isn't on that record really because there's 11 songs on there already but uh, you know we had a real good writing uh, uh, routine and uh, we were very productive uh, and that, I think that's a really good album we got a, uh, three great guitar players on it we've got Joe Satriani uh, we've got uh, Greg Douglas Joe Satriani was in the Greg Kidd band huh yeah, he was, all three of these guys, and then uh, uh, Jimmy Lyon also uh, plays on, on, on that on, on a couple of songs. So, and then uh, Steve and I are the rhythm section, and then Keith England is the singer, and he does just a terrific job. Uh, grungy, uh, high tenor. Uh, love, I love Keith. Uh, I'm hoping for success on uh, this album, and I think there are, are hits in there, but uh, more so. Uh, then for myself, uh, I, I want to see Keith England uh, have his his day uh, in Hitsville because he's he's been that was done 35 years ago and he's still trying to, to make make it and uh, he's a just a terrific guy and uh, and uh, has a, and and he still can hit those high notes which is pretty amazing for a guy his age. But, yeah. So you're saying uh, 1986 and where did you do it? 19, yeah, we was in 1986, and we did it in uh, about, we did about nine recording sessions, so we did it all over the Bay Area. Oh, it was in the and, Bay, okay. Because, one, you know... One up in uh, uh, Reno, Nevada, but, uh, uh, yeah, we're, we, uh, we had some, some uh, real uh, high-rated high pedigree players on that, on that record. Well, I want to play Real Love, okay? Real love's a good one too.
Glad to be home. 
Watt from Pedro Show, Clifford Wright with Real Love, then Ben Salter from Tasmania with Cost, Down on the Street, Stooges Live in Detroit 2003, Joe Wong, gotta thank Joe Wong because he kind of made this connect happen, Cosmo. Oh, yeah. Nuclear Rainbow, an instrumental he, off his new solo album. Then Ginger Baker with Cream doing this at their last gig at the Albert Hall. Toad. And, uh, yeah, he's going for it. And then finally, You Keep Running Away, Clifford Wright. So, uh, I like that one. Yeah. What was the process? Like, who came up with... But even in Cream's days, were you ever involved with the composing? Well, we weren't allowed, so, you know, uh, we, it wasn't something I was interested in doing because I, I couldn't do anything with it. But uh, after the band broke up, then I started uh, recording, and uh, I needed material, and I wanted to write my own, so I started writing. And, uh, uh, you know, it's... Uh, and now I'm, uh, I've got a lot over, well over a hundred songs that are recordable. Can I ask you what you compose? Do you compose on the drums? No. Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, I like I like uh, uh, co-writing, but when I co-write, I only like to write with one other person because once you get more than one, then then you end up kind of trying to find your way in uh, and uh, or, or, and then you know people start uh, worrying about uh, how much they've contributed and this that the other thing I'm a I'm a lyricist and uh, but uh, uh, when I when I write by myself and I do do that I use the piano okay because you know Chico Hamilton tried to get songwriting credits and this is the jazz world they said no no drummers can't write so That's terrible. That, that's arrogance right there. Right, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I, I, I played a song from the Stooges. They told me that when they were in Los Angeles in Hollywood recording Funhouse in 1970, the Saxman brother, Steve McKay, he told me that you got you took them for a ride in a convertible. Do you remember that? I did? Yeah. Not the whole band. It was just the drummer man, Scott Ashton. And the sax man, Steve McKay. I've never had a convertible, so I must have stolen it. <laughs> okay. You never know. You know, people tell you this. I was probably drinking, so. And here's, 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 here's another Stooges story. Uh, the drummer man, Scott Rock Action was his nickname. The manager told him, they had, they had a manager in 1970. He said, look, if the Stooges are going to have a hit, you got to play drums more like Doug Clifford. <laughs> I shit not you bad, not. Not a, bad idea. not a bad idea because you know we we made a point of, of less is best. And, yeah. And it, it took us ten years before we had our first hit record, so we had to stick in there and uh, and we had to keep the genre uh, where it was because we were in the middle of of uh, psychedelic uh, psychedelica in the 60s uh, in the Bay Area. That wasn't us. We weren't going to do it because it was popular. We were going to do what we do best and what we love. And uh, our peers laughed at us, called us the Boy Scouts of Rock and Roll. <laughs> and we'd never make it. Yeah. So 
last laughs are, are yeah, absolutely yeah. you know i remember you know sometimes these gigs i, I played 125 months with those guys and sometimes the gigs were far away from the venue so we were riding back from one in france and i put the ipod things in scotty's ears it was off pendulum it's called it's just a thought and at the end there you start playing these fills that are so fucking bitching that, that was a good record you know uh, and it was different because John played the organ a lot. Yeah, right, and some saxophone, and there's hardly any guitar from him. Yeah, and that was because we took Booker T and the MGs on 31 dates in, in America with us. It was their first national tour ever, and then they made more money than they ever made playing live because we were playing coliseums. Yeah, that was very kind of you. And, and uh, we took good care of them. We, uh, we, yeah. Uh, we learned a lot from those guys, you know. They were they were terrific musicians and just wonderful people. Duck Dunn on the bass, righteous. Oh, uh, yeah, man. Yeah. I've done several albums with Duck. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm a big uh, yeah, I'm a big student of his. We're at the end oh, of yeah. the second hour, June 14, 2021, Dishwap Peter Show special guest, Doug Clifford. Hold tight for hour three. June 14, 2021, it's the third hour of the Watt for Pedro Show. When I 
Anyway, so I wanted to ask you about uh, your good time, long, long time friend of yours, uh, Jim Keltner. You haven't oh, seen Jim Keltner. Lord. He's such a great guy. Yeah, he's yeah. another Tulsa guy. I, oh, um, I did not know he was from Tulsa. Yeah, yeah, and he's he still he's still with his wife. Uh, they went to high school together, and uh, he's been with the same person for all. When was the first years. time you met Jim Keltner? Well, when I went out to California, and it was with Delaney and Bonnie. You know, he was part of the scene, Keltner was. And, um, you know, he was our he was our drummer. Jimmy Carstein was the original drummer. And a Tulsa guy, all right? And then Keltner became our drummer with Delaney Bonnie and friends. Uh, another Tulsa guy. And then uh, uh, he, he gave, uh, gave the spot up for... Uh, for uh, Jim Jim Gordon, you know, to be with Delaney and Bonnie, and oh man, Keltner, his thing was Delaney told me he said he hears because I couldn't figure out why suddenly we have Jim Gordon in our band, right? You know, and it was a different uh, what Keltner did. He's very musical. He is a there was a musical reasoning behind everything, and I understood that there was some. Musical logic behind everything Delaney did or orchestrated. There was something, there was a key to something. Well, this is a key that I'd never, because uh, I'm used to Al Jackson, zoom, zoom, back, zoom, Howard Grimes, zoom, zoom, back, <laughs> you know, laying it down in, in Memphis. And then when we get out here, Keltner had a different touch. He heard everything. He heard everything that everybody was doing, you know. And not hear it just like the audible of it, but the essence of it. Right. He heard that, you see. And so a lot of his playing, he gets so involved musically. He's a real musical drummer, you know. And uh, it's like this floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee, all right. And boy, when that snare comes on alive, it's like pow, you know. But it's just like... Keltner will play with his fingers. He'll he'll do things that are really uh, just to suit the the atmosphere right. of the song. And Jim Gordon, we had a band with horns and you know, <laughs> uh, I, I mean it was like a kicking band. And Jim Gordon was just the drummer, the right drummer for Delaney and Bonnie and friends, you know. Uh, Keltner, Gordon, said, Keltner said it, you know. Yeah, Jim Gordon was more like a freight train. Kind oh, of. he was. He was a freight train. He was the engine of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, man, that, that guy, she's, and it's not volume, and it's, it's technique and the way he played. Not technique. I hate that word. Touch and feel. Jim Gordon just came from another school, and he locked that thing in on. on Listen to California Dreaming album. That's all Jim Gordon on that. I didn't know it until he told me after we was with Derek and the Dominoes. I mean, but this guy had a way of fitting everybody that he played with. He could go right to their heart, and he could drive them too. You know, he he did all all this incredible percussion stuff. You know, uh, so when he came with, to be with us, Hollywood Jim. You know, Skippy as uh, uh, Frank Zappa called him. Clean cut, you know. <laughs> oh, really? It didn't look like it just you know, come out, bought his clothes out of a magazine, you know, one of those. Right. With n- not really good taste either, you know. But 
man, when he kicked it down, forget about it. The whole thing. I mean, so we had Carl and Jim, and Carl was right on Jim's kick kick drum. Boom! I mean, I mean that band moved fixed stages. And when we at the time we had uh, Dave Mason, George Harrison, and Eric Clapton were our guitar players on one of our our, our one and only European tour. Uh, Lord have mercy, we, we did. We played halls, you know, old auditoriums, and they had fixed stage that stages were part of the building, and you could see the speakers moving. You know, <laughs> I read where the uh, that tour was only three weeks. Yeah, it wasn't very long. No, <laughs> and, and it uh, didn't take them that long to, <laughs> to, right. to do what needed to be done. Well, uh, and getting back to Jim Keltner again, he was on uh, the original Delaney and Bonnie. Yeah. And the yeah. song that really always stuck out in, in my mind with him playing was We've Got to Get Ourselves Together in that intro. Diddle, 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 diddle. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that, that, that intro with Jim Keltner was just beautiful. Yeah, well, uh, 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 all of the things that he did were just pretty, pretty amazing. So, see, for that album... That album wasn't a freight train album, you no, know. But I mean, who came up with that intro? Was that a Delaney intro, or is that the the, the melody? We've got to get ourselves together in the yeah, intro. Yeah, I would imagine it's either uh, Delaney or or uh, Jerry McGee, you know. It's a. But the drums are playing right there. Well, that would be Jim's thing. I mean, he took care of the drums. Delaney never told anybody what to do. He always had the he always he told me, surround yourself with people as good as good as you are. I took that uh, advice a step further, and I surrounded myself with people who are better at doing what they do as I am doing what I'm doing. And so that takes the burden, a little bit of the burden off, you know. You want to drive, Chris?
Watch for Pedro Show start off the third hour with just in the nick of time, Clifford Wright. Percussion discussion, Charles Mingus and Max Roach, 1955. Live at the Bohemia. Jim Keltner versus Jim Gordon. Bobby Whitlock, Coco Carmel talking these days. Everywhere we go, Bagetta, Keltner, Watt. I got to record with Jim Keltner. Tulsa guy. Great cat. And finally, Clifford Wright with Weekends. Can I ask you, did you ever get into big hi-hats? Uh, I, I uh, have 18-inch hi-hats. <laughs> what was the idea behind that? Well, you know, one of the things I noticed, most of the songs we played were uh, on the, uh, playing eighth notes on the, on the hi-hat. Yeah. And, and you know, hi hats are generally fourteen inches, or right? They, right. They were back then, and and they, they had no tone. Uh, and I, you know, I, I I only had one crash symbol, and then I used the right symbol uh, a lot as a crash symbol, but it would be a, a lower uh, register symbol because of the size of it. Sure. And uh, but I played a, a lot of that, uh, and so you know, the greatest uh, crashes is you guys cover. I've heard it through the grapevine where you put the crash on the four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that and that dually you do with John at the end, yeah. is that a jam or was it planned or? Well, it, it was a combination of two things. We 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 it was some of it was was jamming, and we ne never did that. We always rehearsed and rehearsed played the song exactly the way we rehearsed it but uh, it just I got going and I just, just forgot where I was it's <laughs> great I started going with it and then and then he he jumped on uh, when, I, when I realized you know oh shit this isn't what we what we practiced and I looked at him you know you know and I, and I said you well, you got us here you know so you know it yeah. kind of happens again in Pagan Baby a little bit but uh, yeah what I, what I read was the only jam song, totally from a jam, was Born on the Bayou. That was the uh, one that we played in the clubs, because that was our second album on our second album. Sure, Bayou Country. And, uh, yeah, and uh, that's my favorite Creedence song. Oh, man. It's, Whose idea was the cowbell? Uh, well, I played quarter notes through that whole song. Sure. So... Uh, that set the cowbell up for a, for a home run. <laughs> you know, that's an important music concept. You set it up. That's how you get an ensemble, you get the interesting conversation going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Your fills, the way you got into verses, got into choruses, come out of bridges, all that setup stuff you did with fills is so happening. Oh, thanks very much. I, you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a flashy guy uh, or, or, or a technician, but I'm a I'm a field player. Yeah, big time. And, and and all the you know all those those gigs that we played in the bars where you were playing five sets a night and playing you know somebody else's records and their hits, and so the the fills were were based based on those. But a lot of them I would like cut in half. Uh, you know where they were they were using using the the, the tempo in, in, in four right. a lot and uh, and moving you know moving moving sections uh, from uh, 
from verse to chorus, chorus to, to verse, there's a, there's a difference. Al, yeah. Jackson, Al Jackson Jr. and I became really good friends, and, and he, he never brought sticks out and said, you know, do this, do that. We just talked. And he said, what are your goals? And I said, I want to be a metronome. He says, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, because John wants, you know, wants, wants, <laughs> wants a, a metronome. He says, a metronome is a machine. You're a human being, and there's a there's a space between uh, rushing and dragging, and then the middle of the, the note. And uh, you know, sometimes you know you hear it, and and uh, when you're going into that chorus or a solo, you know it, something's coming. You, you let that heart beat a little bit, but you know, don't don't go too far past. Then you're then you're then you're rushing, and then it's the same thing when you're you know when you've had that excitement of a solo or. or you know the chorus is the money part, uh, and you're coming back down and settling into the verse. You can settle it back just a, just a hair, but it, it's got to it's got to be in your heart. You got to let your heart do it. Yeah. I mean, holy cow! That's that, that's the best advice I've ever ever got. And and and, and I, I, I he says, well, you do it anyway. And uh, and I said, yeah, but I I never thought about it before. It's a natural Cosmo. Here, I want to play uh, Lonesome Boy.
Well, for Pedro Show, last music for this edition, Clifford Wright with Lonesome Boy, then Mike Cooper with Vital Alsar, Fair Forward from John Duncan and Stephanopoli, and finally, Clifford Wright with You're Gonna Love Again. Man. <laughs> so so th what you're saying is with this Clifford Wright record, it's actually the first of a bunch of releases that's coming of old stuff. That's right. Okay, okay. And where can people find you on the internet? Um, well, it's not, it's, it hasn't been officially released yet. Okay, when's that going to happen? 27th of August. Okay, a couple months, okay. In a couple months, but there's going to be two singles released before that. On the 13th of July, for all the money in the world, it's going to be a single. Yeah. And the 3rd of August is going to be, uh, to, uh, oh, uh, I Need Your Love. Okay. And, and where can people hear this? Is there a website? Well, they can hear it on your show. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But, I mean, on those dates when the stuff gets released, where can they go? Oh, well, all the, all the, the, the regular suspects. Okay, okay. I was wondering if there was a Cosmo website. Oh, yeah, there is, it? but it's... it's uh, we're, we're waiting uh, uh, with, 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 this is going to be on my label oh I've okay a, you've got a label now okay I've got a label now and it's going to be uh, distributed by Sony and uh, uh, I'm waiting to there uh, it's a fellow named uh, Bob Frank has Sony Orchard a distributorship and he's been around for years and he loves the record Oh, and great. We're going to be using a lot of independent radio people. Uh, I've got a, I've got my own uh, press agent, my own press agent. And so we're going to be coordinating all this, and I want to bring these guys in. And uh, that's why we're going to have those two singles out in front. And uh, uh, Cosmo, you can go to my my website. It's DougCosmoClifford.com. Uh, Okay, okay. You hear that, people? D-O-U-G-C-O-S-M-O-C-L-I-F-F-O-R-D.com. And can, can I ask, are you going to have gigs going along with this release? I miss that. Gigs, performances. No, 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 no gigs. I have, uh, I have Parkinson's. Oh, so I'm so sorry. Going back. That's right. Yeah, you know, we looked at each other and said, "It's like we knew." Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, 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 but the music's coming out and stuff. And what yeah. do you, what do you think? Like four or five albums? Yeah, I, I, I definitely do. I've got one with with Bobby Whitlock. Uh, I've got I've got uh, this one. I've got one with me as a solo artist. I've got. Uh, uh, Bunch, a bunch of stuff. Uh, With you as a solo artist, it's not just you playing. Do you have sidemen? But you, you did all the material yourself. Well, uh, I, I, I had, I had, yeah, I had to use uh, side, sidemen for sure. But uh, the, with the one with Whitlock was a band that we had 
that we're trying to get a deal for, and it just it didn't it didn't didn't plan out. Right, and right. His wife didn't 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 like living in the Bay Area, so that took care of that. Uh, Steve Wright died, so that kind of took care of that. Yeah, you know. Uh, but it, it's they're all coming out of Cosmos Vault, and that's what we're going to use it to, to make it like a little series. You know, fresh from Cosmos Vault, that would be me, my vault. Yeah, I've got, yeah. I've got some pretty good music. You know? And people, you got to understand, Cosmos, uh, you know, the, the Creedence album, that, that was the name of their practice pad. Yeah, the practice pad, our biggest album, Cosmos Factory. Right, that's right. And uh, it all, oh, I love it. I love it. Those first six records, oh my God. When you go you get in the van with Watt, you're going to hear all six in order. <laughs> Because I just love it. I mean, I, I hate to blame you, but <laughs> a lot of inspiration from you, Cosmos. Thank you so much for being on the show, truly. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, anytime you want to come on, you just tell me when you get these new records or whatever. Big oh, love, I'll big say, love. I'll say, I'll say, hey, what's up? <laughs> Thank you much. People, it's been June 14, 2021 edition. Watt Peter Show. Keep your powder dry. <laughs>